0: our culture, and our society, and our city of Greenville. Its greatest need is a church that is alive and growing and living out their faith in the messy distraction of everyday living and saying there is a better way. Welcome to First and Foremost, a weekly broadcast of First Presbyterian Church in the heart of downtown Greenville. Senior Pastor Richard Gibbons invites you to join us as we study God's Word together and discover what is first and foremost in our lives. If you have your Bible with you this morning, would you turn with me, please, to Revelation chapter 14? I had hoped several months ago that this morning we'd be getting into Revelation 15, but there's so more still in chapter 14, we'll get to Revelation next week, and in fact, 15 and 16 go very much better together, so please forgive me for that. We're turning to Revelation 14, and the first five verses this morning. Then I looked, and there before me was the Lamb, standing on Mount Zion. And with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a sound from heaven like the roar of rushing waters and like a loud peal of thunder. The sound I heard was like that of a harpist playing the harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn the song except 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth these are those who did not defile themselves with women, for they kept themselves pure. They follow the Lamb wherever He goes. They were purchased from among men and offered as firstfruits to God and the Lamb. No lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. Amen, and we trust that God will bless to us this reading from His Holy Word. There are a number of questions that naturally come out of Revelation chapter 14. And in many ways, this feels tailor-made this morning for where we are, still in these early days of a new year. And John is writing to seven churches in Asia Minor. He's writing to encourage them in their faith. They're going through a tough time, and we'll get to that in a minute. But the first thing he is seeking to have them do is this. Prioritize your spiritual walk. Prioritize your spiritual walk. Put first things first. Now let me say it again. First things first. That's a major theme running throughout this book because we tend to think that Revelation is about the end of the world and it certainly is and the climax and culmination of all of history but it's also a discipleship manual written to real congregations with real people living real lives and John gets right down into the nitty-gritty this morning and we're going to get there in a couple of minutes. So with all of that in mind, Whenever we come to a passage of Scripture on a sunny morning, we're asking several questions. And with Revelation, we are asking, who is writing, to whom, and why? And I'll quickly deal with that so we can get into our study. The Apostle John is writing. He's writing in the year around AD 95, AD 96. The reason he's writing is the churches in Asia Minor are going through a period of persecution. Domitian was the Roman... Caesar in those days, and he had instituted empire-wide worship of Caesar. And so everyone, for all intents and purposes in the known world, had to bow down and declare Caesar as Lord and God and had to worship him. And Christians had a hard time with that in the first century. We have a hard time with it in the 21st century. We simply wouldn't do that. But that was instituted empire-wide John himself, when he is writing, is under arrest for his faith. He was taken from Ephesus and put on a small Greek island called Patmos. You can still visit it today, and you can see where he walked and some of the buildings that uh, is now a monastery. It's a remarkable visit. But that's what was going on. And John is writing to folks who are needing to be strengthened in their faith. He's wanting to encourage them. Some of them, we imagine, would have gone through dry spells in their faith. Some would be tempted to give up when it got very hard, especially under fear of persecution. And John is saying, hang on in there. The Lord has not given up on you. His hand is still on you. He will enable you to persevere and go deeper in your faith. Keep going. That's what lies behind much of his writing. And remember, John is writing of what was, what is, and what is still to come. And that's exactly what he's doing. Now, for us, when we approach Revelation, it causes us a couple of difficulties. There are two standard approaches to Revelation. And the first is this the first approach is to convince ourselves that it is a bewildering, incomprehensible, opaque book, packed with complex imagery, symbolism, apocalyptic writing, and therefore easier to ignore. Have you ever taken up that approach when it comes to Revelation? Yeah, I suspect most of us have at one point or another. And we understand that. Then the second approach is to get so immersed in Revelation that the only way to understand the world today and the times in which we are living in is through a detailed, complex, analytical study of Revelation which allows us to consider contemporary history as a reflection of events in Revelation itself. And sometimes we fall into that trap. And so there are two approaches, or two standard approaches. Back in January 2016, when we started Revelation for eight or nine weeks, and again last year, and again this week, we have tried to take a middle ground. And our middle ground involves two questions. What does the passage mean? And what does it mean to us today? And those are great questions. If you're taking notes this morning, get them down, because it's important to get them in that order. What does the passage mean? Now, what does the passage mean today? Often, if I find myself at small Bible studies with a group of men or ladies, or I'm leading a Sunday school class or something like that, the question will come up. And someone will say, having read the passage, usually the Bible study leader will then pick someone at random, Tom or Susie, in order to engage in some discussion, will say, now, Susie, what does that passage mean to you? And that's a great question. But it's not the first question. Because the first question is, what does the passage mean? And once you've established what the passage means, then you can say, what does it mean to us today? It's a little like asking 10 and 11-year-olds, what does 1776 mean to you? Well, you've got to establish what 1776 means, then you can establish what does it mean to them. Can you see the point? It's a little subtle, but it's important because we often think the passage is all about us, and it's not. It's first and foremost about God and His love, and His grace, and the wonder, and thrill, and joy of knowing Him, that's where it begins. What does the passage mean? Now, what does the passage mean to you? So, when we come to chapter 14, with all of that being said, let's ask the question, what does it mean And John begins, Then I looked, and there before me was the Lamb, and standing on the Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. Now let me pause right there. Because immediately you're asking yourself, Richard, what does 144,000 mean? Is it symbolic or is it statistical? And here is the response. Revelation chapter 7 For the first time, you read of the 144,000, and the chapter breaks down like this. The 144,000 was symbolic of the people of Israel. And because John is writing about what was, what is, and what is still to come, he fairly quickly moves us from one scene to another to another. And the scene immediately after describing the 144,000 and the 12 tribes as representative of, and therefore symbolic, of ancient Israel, he then goes on to highlight who are the others involved in the 144,000. And he talks of every tribe and tongue and nation, because the 144,000 are clearly symbolic, and they're symbolic of all of humanity. And there's a sense in which, as John is, John is writing, he's writing 12 times 12. In other words, a huge number unable to be counted. And the rest of chapter 7, and John hints at it here again, says this, that the salvation of humanity will be made up of a number that is quite simply unknown from every tribe and tongue and nation. In other words, folks in Guatemala and folks in Greenville, Toronto and Tokyo, South Africa and Moscow, Australia and Greenland. In other words, all people everywhere whom God has touched by his love and his grace, are drawn into his kingdom as they respond to the gospel. That's the point he's making. And so as John is writing about what was, what is, and what is still to come, he's now got caught up in the throne room of God in heaven, and he's describing what he sees. So that's what's happening there. And then he says, and I heard a sound from heaven like the roar of rushing waters and like a loud peal of thunder. The song I heard was that of harpists playing their harps. So the idea, the popular cartoon, is that heaven is filled with angels sitting on clouds playing harps. It's not true, but it comes from here. That's the point. There's much more to heaven than that. And then in verse 3, and they sang a new song before the throne and before the living creatures representing the four corners of the earth and the elders. And no one could learn the song except 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. Now it's that word redeemed I want to focus on. Because when John begins to describe those involved, he calls them the redeemed. And then in verse 3, he says, they were purchased from among men and offered as firstfruits to God and the Lamb. So the language is redeemed and purchased. And what do we make of that? Well, throughout Scripture, particularly the New Testament, you will hear about in Christ coming into the world, He came for what? The redeemed redemption of humanity. Not just 144,000. Symbolic of humanity. He came to redeem. In other words, when He came into our world to draw us into the love and grace of Almighty God, when He died on the cross, He died for our sins. In other words, He paid the penalty for our sin. Our sin was put on him, and he paid the price. In other words, he paid the price in order to what? Redeem us and purchase us. That's what's going on there, and that's the language John is using. In fact, in 2 Corinthians, the apostle Paul said, or 1 Corinthians 6, rather, the apostle Paul, in writing to the Corinthians, says this, Do you not know that you are no longer your own? You now belong to Him. He has purchased you. Remember earlier in the chapter, in those opening words, here was 144,000 with the name written on the forehead. Should we expect to see people with names written on the forehead? No. But what we should expect to see is this, a lifestyle that tells you who they belong to. That's the point. And John is saying in the first century, and every bit is important in the 21st century, he's saying this, Christian people have a Christian lifestyle. In other words, if you are going to show any measure of authenticity and credibility, Christian values, moral and spiritual standards are important in your life. In other words, folks should be able to look at your life and see by the way you raise your children, by the way you engage in the parent-teacher association, by the way you go about your daily business in the office, the folks in your neighborhood, friends at church, family would be, should be able to say they belong to Christ because their life is different. Authenticity, credibility, honesty, character, These things are important, as is prayer, as is faith, as is worship, and so on and so on and so on. And so the mark in the head is symbolic of a lifestyle. And that's why John is saying, when you see them, you will know them, not simply because of the mark, but by the way they live. They put first things first. That's the point he's making here. And so having described them in that sense, he then takes it a step further. And what does he say? He then goes on, these are those, verse 4, and this is where it comes. And let me give you a heads up. In the next 10 to 15 minutes, you are going to become very uncomfortable because I'm going to tackle some nitty-gritty issues that we don't often talk about on a Sunday morning. But since it's in the passage and comes directly out of the passage... Please be patient with me, and I will try and be as gentle as I can. So, in verse 4, in describing those who belong to Christ, this is what he said. He says, These are those who did not defile themselves with women, for they were kept, for they kept themselves pure. They follow the Lamb wherever he goes. Now, let me explain what's going on here. John is speaking in two senses. He's speaking in a general sense, and then he takes it to the particular and the specific. And the general sense he's using is this. he is saying to the folks in first century, the culture, the society around you, and remember where they were living. They were living in major cities in Asia Minor. And all over those cities were symbols and imagery of Roman imperial power. They saw it in law courts. They saw it in administration. They saw it in day-to-day business transactions. They saw it in healthcare. They saw it in education. And Rome was everything to them. And John is saying please understand, and he's been saying this for the past 13 chapters. As we come into 14, he's getting very particular. He's saying the temptation today is to look to the society and culture around you and get your moral and spiritual standards from that culture and society. And John is saying this, but they did not defile themselves, and he says here, with women, in other words, the culture and the society around them the moral and spiritual standards. In other words, they would not become intimate with the culture and the society. So he's speaking in a metaphorical sense. And then he takes it a step further and he says, they kept themselves pure. Now, let me apply that in the broad sense, and then I'll get to the particular. In the broad sense, the principle is this that the culture and society around you has so much to offer in terms of music and art and education and all of that. But there is also parts of that culture that as Christian people, we simply cannot go along with. And when John uses the analogy of purity and sexuality, he's getting down to the nitty gritty. So let me try and do that as gently as I can, and it's this, that over the last 50 to 55 years, the moral and spiritual standards of our society has declined markedly, markedly. And as a society and a culture, we have lost the ability to blush and be embarrassed. We simply have. And so what John is saying is what the rest of the New Testament and the Old Testament teaches and teaches clearly. In regard to sexual activity, Christian people rejoice and celebrate sexuality within the bonds of marriage because there is light years of a difference between sexual activity and loving intimacy sexual activity before marriage or outside of marriage is temporary and transient. Within the bonds of marriage, what lies at the heart of it, what makes it marriage is lifelong commitment in love. In other words, if you get fed up with a person you're married, you don't have the right to walk away. When they annoy you and you just get so frustrated with them. And I have to tell you, Ruth will be the first to tell you, I am not easy to live with, but her relationship is this. She can't walk away. And I'm so grateful. And if she does walk away, I'm going with her. She just doesn't know that, but that's what's happening. Within the marriage relationship is lifelong commitment richer for poorer, for better for worse, in sickness and in health. And that lifelong commitment means what? That the marriage gets deeper and richer and fuller and sweeter as the years go by, and you don't walk away. And it means this, that when you do get it wrong and you become selfish and self-focused, you then go to your husband and wife and say, I'm so sorry. Please forgive me. And that relationship goes to a whole new level again. That's what's going on. But culture and society around us highlight sexual activity over and above, loving intimacy. And they do what? They sell it on the basis that it is exciting, and it's extraordinary, and it's intriguing. And please hear me when I say this. As a pastor, I often have to pick up the pieces of life that have given in to that kind of nonsense. Because that's exactly what it is sexual activity will never replace lifelong intimacy. It cannot. It promises so much and it delivers so little. And the culture and society around us at times will make you feel prudish and priggish and puritanical because you do not go along with that society and the cultural standards. But folks, please hear me when I say this. John was saying it in the first century. We're taking the principles and applying them in the 21st century and it is this deep, abiding, loving intimacy within marriage is not prudish. It is not priggish. It is precious It is precious, and it is for lifelong companionship and the full expression of love between a husband and a wife. And we are so tempted to give in to what is going on over here. And the first century needed to hear it, and the 21st century needed to hear it, and hear me when I say this, and I'm saying it in the most carefully constructed and crafted way, Possible, Our culture and our society and our city of Greenville, its greatest need is a church that is alive and growing and living out their faith in the messy distraction of everyday living and saying there is a better way. And there is a better way. And when we live out our faith, that is what's happening. And that is what John is saying. When you remain faithful to Him, when you are committed to Him, then you're blessed by Him. And then, then you belong to Him. That's what's going on in this passage. And notice what John does. He takes them a step further. And he says, when you put first things first, verse 5, No lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. Now I think each one of us would hesitate to say we are blameless. But please understand, blameless doesn't mean perfection. Blameless means this, that as you try to live out your faith day by day by day, there are times when you will get it wrong. There are times when you will sin. There are times when you break the heart of God and you hurt people around you. But then you come back to him and you say, please forgive me. I got it wrong. What was I thinking? And he lets you begin again. That's what it means to be blameless because none of us are perfect. And that's the point John is making. Now hear this as I try and wrap it all up. This morning we asked the question, what is, what's one thing you could do this year to increase your enjoyment of God? And here it comes. Obedience. Obedience. James, in writing the New Testament epistle, which is the most practical of all epistles, he says this, do not merely read the Word of God, but do what it says. And then he adds, and then you will be blessed in all that you do. So, hear the principle. With obedience comes blessing. When you st- Step out in faith and say, Father, around me is a culture and a society whose moral and spiritual standards are on the verge of bankruptcy and utter decline. Please help me to step out in faith. Help me to be pure in my prayer life. Help me to be pure in my everyday interactions with other. Enable me to be a man or woman of character, of honesty, of authenticity, of credibility. Father, help me recalibrate and retune my deepest affections in order that I might live for you. That's when God begins to bless. That's when He strengthens. That's when you know we are becoming a People who put first things first. Because when you're there, your enjoyment of Him is overwhelming and you will never, never substitute it for anything else again. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this very challenging passage and revelation. Help us this year, please, to be people who will increase in our joy of you, to feel your hand upon our lives, lead us, guide us, protect us, direct us in order that we might put first things first. Father, thank you for your eternal love for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Would you like to explore membership at First Presbyterian Church? Join us for a new member weekend and discover how we worship and live out our faith with each other and our community. The weekend consists of three sessions taking place on Friday evening, Saturday morning, and Sunday afternoon. You'll enjoy a meal with our senior pastor and other leaders. Learn what we believe and hear about our vision. Child care is available. Register today at firstpressgreenville.org.